Welcome back to Who's Talking. She's one of the most recognizable and controversial figures in American politics, a target for Republicans, a thorn in the side of Democratic leaders, and an icon for millions of young progressive voters. Who better to try to make sense of a muddled midterm election? You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception. That's reality. I'm feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you for having me. Well, you may have noticed we had a midterm, Mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't really seem to give either party a mandate. What what do you think voters were saying? Yeah, well, you know, I I would almost disagree with that assessment. I think the degree of Democratic overperformance, in a way, very much strengthens President Biden and his agenda. You know, most presidents uh, lose a very large amount, dozens of midterm Uh, dozens of seats from their party in every midterm election. And the fact that this is a dead heat, I think is a very strong message from the electorate that that we need to keep going and that President Biden's agenda, but also the very real threat of the anti-democracy positioning of the Republican Party is something that voters take very seriously and will not accept. I want to put up a finding from the CNN exit poll on election night, when voters were asked which party is too extreme, this is nationally, not New York, 39% said only Republicans, but 38% said only Democrats. Do people want both parties to move from the fringes, from the extremes, back to the center? Well, I think... I think a lot of people in this country may say yes, but it's important for us to dig into the substance of what that actually means. I would argue that our media environment contributes a lot to people's perceptions about what quote-unquote extreme means on either end of the spectrum. Um, As someone who is often, uh, I think, characterized as extreme, I, of course, would object to that. I do not believe that I am as extreme... uh, in the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene on the Republican side is extreme. I believe in the full integrity of our elections. I believe in American democracy. I believe that should you lose an election, uh, we don't question the very core principles. I believe in the United States Constitution. I believe in acknowledging uh, court rulings, whether I agree with them or not. And I believe that that is also, you know, the idea that there is an equating of believing in someone who believes in guaranteed universal health care in the United States with someone who believes that undocumented people should incur physical harm uh, are somehow in the same level of extreme is something that I would object to. But I think that it's not just a question of election denial or democracy denial. It's also a question of policy. Mm -hmm. And according to our exit polls, voters now trust Republicans more by a wide margin to deal with problems they face in their daily lives, like inflation and Mm -hmm. crime. Mm -hmm. What's the lesson for Democrats going forward on that? You know, I don't, I, again, I don't think that that is necessarily about policy because Republicans do not have proposed policies to tackle inflation. Wait, 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 wait. 
I mean, on the case of inflation, I mean, it, generally speaking, the first merd term is to a certain degree or to a large degree, a referendum on how they think things are going. Mm-hmm. Inflation is at a 40 year high. All right. You're you're right. Maybe Democrat uh, Republicans don't have a plan. But traditionally in American politics, mm-hmm. people say, do we like how things are going? And mm-hmm. overwhelmingly on the economy, on inflation, on crime, they don't. Yeah. And that's understandable. I think that is very but that's understandable. that's on you guys. I think it's on our governance, absolutely. But, but you're the government. It was a democratic yes, government. I, well, I believe it's on our governance, but I also believe that this is about something greater than governance because there is an elephant in the room. Let's talk about inflation, where the largest shares of what is driving inflation is, is corporate <laughs> profiteering, and the statistics are there. Are there certain policies that some folks could say contribute to inflation? Yes. But when you actually break down the numbers and what's contributing to inflation, the lion's share of this is companies choosing to raise prices because they can and because they see they want to drive demand curves and test them to the absolute limit and see how much will a person pay for diapers? How desperate are they? And they will charge as much as they possibly can. Now, I believe there is a policy response here. While we did pass the Inflation Reduction Act in September, I mean, in, over the summer, I do believe that we need to do more on this. And if anything, I believe that people are not where, where the discontent comes in government response is that we're not doing enough, not that we're doing too much. So <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around that a mm-hmm. little bit. I, I, I understand, and you're a democratic socialist, you have a certain view of the economy and capitalism and the world. That's a hard argument to make to somebody who's paying $5 a gallon. I mean, first of all, you're talking about societal changes that would take a long time to affect. Not necessarily, though. Well, I mean, well, but let me, let me just, if I may finish, mm-hmm. you're, you, you had spent $3 trillion. Uh, you had Democratic people saying, oh, inflation's going to be transitory. You know, there's an argument about mm-hmm. capitalism, but there's also an argument that there was a problem here and President Biden and Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate didn't address it and didn't address it quickly enough. I reject the notion. I f- and I mean, this just may be an area of difference. I fundamentally reject the notion that um, what voters, you know, that the, that the discontent is with the fact that we did too much to stop this. I think people want us to take decisive action. Um, and if anything, you know, the fact that you have these massive companies that have gobbled up markets, everything from essential goods, paper towels, to, to media, having, you know, not even having local journalism outlets being independent anymore. That market concentration has fundamentally affected American this, society. That's, this is all a kind of policy, high 30,000 foot argument. Let's mm-hmm. talk about it on the ground as it played out in sure. the election, because in a number of races, you were an issue, and Republicans mm-hmm. used you to, in places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, to go after the people they were running against. Take a look. Washington Democrats want to keep spending and raise your taxes to do it. Socialized medicine? Where do you get these crazy ideas? Mandela Barnes, a different Democrat, a dangerous Democrat. The argument they're making is Democrats like you have taken the party and the country too far to the left. Mm -hmm. Well, we won Pennsylvania, didn't we? And we've overperformed across the country, haven't we? Because I think that reiterating the fact that we care about health care, 
talking about things like decriminalizing marijuana, um, discussing some of these core issues work. But I would also counter that one of the decisive factors in the midterm elections was youth turnout. Youth turnout and the enthusiasm among young people is what turned a lot of these close races to tip towards Democrats. And one thing that we know about young people is that they are overwhelmingly progressive. They want us to do more. They're fired up on climate. And with any figure, with any decision, with any choice, this is leadership. You're going to take a knock. There are going to be cons. But we can also acknowledge that there are benefits to having robust members of our party that unapologetically champion the working class. Well, you, you talk about members of your party unapolog unapologetically championing, but it wasn't just Republicans who went after mm -hmm. you. Or there were some concerns among Democrats. For instance, when you tweeted in support of Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan running in a very tough race that he lost mm -hmm. in Ohio, he said this, it's not a helpful endorsement here, nor did I seek it. Mm -hmm. Mandela Barnes, a progressive running in Wisconsin, said, I'm not running for the Senate to join the squad or any group of lawmakers. Why do you think Democrats in, in a number of tough races wanted to keep their distance from you? Well, I think it's completely fine for us to run our races tactically um, and position each person as an individual. You know, I think sometimes even we object to being uh, grouped together in the media as well, you know, with these with these monikers like the squad. I love um, our, 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 you know, my sisters in Congress, but we are also individuals. And I think it's totally fine to position ourselves that way. Do you not like to be called the squad? You know, I think we very much operate as a sisterhood, but we are also individuals. Both of those uh, things are true. I also think, again, when we look at the differences between Pennsylvania and Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, in, in terms of voter turnout, had very similar voter turnout across age brackets as Ohio. The difference was that youth turnout surged in Pennsylvania. I think there's an argument to be made that when we speak and distance ourselves too much, it's important to identify ourselves strongly as who we are. I, I think Tim Ryan ran a phenomenal race. Mandela Barnes ran a great race. I think there are racial dynamics in that race that need to be discussed in terms of how Republicans targeted a, a black man running in that race. Um, and I think that that needs to be just put out there. But I do think that youth turnout is what made the difference here and that there are smart ways to navigate this tactically. And it's not a, a, a bad or wrong thing. You know, I, I take no... Uh, I, I take no offense to that. If they want to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Run Let, your race. Let's talk about <clears throat> AOC. And first of all, I've wondered, what do you think of that? Do you like being called AOC? <laughs> um, the first time I started to be called AOC was after I, I ran, after I, I won my uh, first election. Um, but I take it, you know, I see it as a term of endearment. I think when everyday people kind of shout that out on the street or when I'm in my community and people say that, um, I am flattered by it because it's people just trying to, you know, they're, I, they're not calling me Congresswoman. And I, I like that. I like that people feel comfortable enough to 
almost speak to me as a friend. When you went to college, you were interested in science and pre-med, possibly becoming a doctor. Question, why did MIT name an asteroid after you? <laughs> well, I was, I did uh, initially go to Boston University, declared as a biochemistry major, and I actually went, attended uh, partially. I, I, I look up on the screen, because <laughs> the outer ring here, folks, is... Two three two three eight Ocasio Cortez, and 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 in color and everything. (laughs) Yes, one of the questions I have. Well, first of all, quickly, how did that happen? And secondly, what do you think of your critics? How would they feel knowing that Ocasio Cortez (laughs) is circling the solar system? Well, you know, I think um, I I, that happened because uh, in high school I went to uh, Boston University partially on an Intel. (laughs) A scholarship, which I won conducting microbiology research out of uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Uh, and it was longevity research. And so I placed second internationally uh, in microbiology at the Intel International Science Engineering Fair. And that was the prize. I think it's wonderful to have a memento of that part of my life and that part of my passions and interests. Science has always been, I wanted to be a a science and actually an OBGYN before I wanted to go into policy. And um, and I think it, it also drives a lot of the work that we do today. You know, my focus on both healthcare and climate science it is, the, is my way of retaining my scientific passions in my policy work. For all your celebrity, and we're going to get to that, <laughs> you're also, and I think both your supporters and detractors would say, a very effective politician. And one thing that I noticed and was watching live in 2019, the committee that you were a member of was interrogating former Trump fixer Michael Cohen. And you pressed down and got the answer that led to New York State filing a $250 million lawsuit against Mr. Trump and some other people. Take a look. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump org. You uh, said later that uh, bartending and waitressing hone a razor-sharp BS detector. (laughs) Yes. One thing that I did when I worked in, in, in restaurants, when I worked in bars, is that you are talking to hundreds, if not thousands of people over the course, back to back, over the course of days and weeks. And so you learn a great deal about human interaction and expression. And you can learn when there's something that's a little bit more there to dig into. You can learn when to move on something, to move on very quickly. So so give me an example, either in dealing with one of your colleagues in Congress, mm-hmm. dealing with a, a witness at a hearing. How does the BS detector click in? Well, a lot of times when you are working on the inside of politics in Washington, a lot of our work has to do with truth finding. You know, people make promises to each other and sometimes they'll go back on those promises. They'll say that they'll give you their vote, but they may not have it in the end. And so a lot of times when you're having these conversations, not only do you need to see and listen to what someone is saying, but you need to really get a sense of how rock solid what they are saying is, how sure they are of something. 
Are they 50% sure? Are they 80% sure? And I think that that skill set very much comes into play with that. 50% sure. Let's talk about social media. At last check, you had 13 million followers on Twitter and 8.6 million on Facebook. And I'm curious about how you choose to handle some of the comments you get. I want to put one of them up. Last year, a former Trump campaign operative tweeted this photo of you with your fiance (laughs) and said, her guy, you're now fiance, her guy is showing his gross, pale male feet in public with hideous sandals. <laughs> this was your response. If Republicans are mad, they can't date me. They can just say that instead of projecting their sexual frustrations onto my boyfriend's feet, you creepy weirdos. Why did you go that route? Well, I think that the comments uh, taken in context was part of a long strain of a long pattern of behavior, not just online, but frankly, on television and in conservative media outlets of a fixation of how I look, a fixation on my partner, a fixation, uh, and even just a general narrative, the things that they chose to talk about were very much rooted in my identity as a woman and I believe rooted in a great deal of misogyny and underlying Um, I believe, underlying issues around sex and identity. And a lot of the way that I believe Republican narratives work is in speaking in subtext. And the way that we remove that power is by calling it out explicitly. And I think that also speaks to the overwhelming reaction that Republicans had uh, and Republican media had after I stated that. Because I called them out on the way that they long had discussed me as a woman, how they long discussed how I looked, how they long discussed my age, how they long discussed who I am in in my station in life. It is none of a Republican Party's business to discuss if I'm single or married or if I'm, you know, what that may be. And they had developed a very long comfort and pattern in going there with me. And I believe that that comfort was there was because I'm young and because I'm a woman. And I will call it out. And certainly it, it is not um, an Emily Post way of doing that, but I'm also a New Yorker and I can't deny the way that, uh, that I, you know, the culture that I was raised in. So did it work calling it out? Did it make it any better or did it just fan the flame? No, I believe it did work because I have noticed a significant reduction in that fixation uh, towards me, at least on Fox News, not perhaps not online, but I believe it, it has in other conservative media outlets. It's been effective. You're also in a scrap right now with Elon Musk over his plan to charge people seven dollars and ninety nine cents mm-hmm. a month to have their accounts verified after you say Twitter messed up your account. You posted this. Mm-hmm. So it turns out we got under a certain little billionaire skin. There's something that is so satisfying about just being here in the Bronx, in Parkchester, with my dog, and we have a billionaire 
pressed. Like, pressed. It's American dream, baby. <laughs> so, first of all, and you're a master at messaging, I think you actually made a mistake there because mm. I know a lot of people focus more on the chicken nugget you yeah, were eating than yeah. what you said. <laughs> and anyway, that way they couldn't get past yeah. that. But why, again, why make things so personal? I think um, we need to make the issues that we discuss real. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are in a point in not just American society, but in our global economy, where the concentration of wealth and power has become so focused that it is literally identifiable people, not coalitions, not groups, not, um, not anything else like that, not, not a company, but one individual that has control over what has largely been deemed an important public square of sorts of democratic discourse. I think it's important for us to call attention to that because it's not just a, um, it, you know, this isn't, this isn't just like a, a, a flippant message. This is an individual that is responsible and over stewarding a platform that has been a very important uh, realm of political expression, like the Arab Spring, like many of our election discourse, and the decisions that are made over that um, has, have broad implications. The flip side of the way you confront your critics, and, and in a very personal, direct way, is that it has brought a lot of ugly targeting mm -hmm. of you. I don't have to tell you, uh, Representative Republican Congressman Paul Gosar posted uh, an animation that it seemed to be some fantasy about him killing you. Uh, another Republican congressman, Ted Yoho, called you disgusting and much worse. And then there was Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said this. The Democrats are now controlled by the Jihad squad, led by AOC, the little communist from New York City. I want to put up something that you said this summer, which is which is serious. Realistically. I can't even tell you if I'm going to be alive in September. Congresswoman, is that real? Do you, do you feel your life is in danger? I mean, absolutely. I felt that my life has been in danger since the moment that um, I won my primary election in 2018. And I, it, it became especially intensified when I was first uh, brought into Congress uh, in 2019. Um, and it's, you know, I've, I've spoken to this because I think that it is a very real dynamic and very unfortunately and tragically, we've seen political violence play out even in the attempted, uh, you know, the attempted assassination of the Speaker of the House and the attack on, on her husband. This is a very real threat. It is not hyperbole. Um, and uh, I, I have felt this way for I, for some time, for some time. You know, I, I have mixed feelings about even talking about it mm -hmm. because talking about it conceivably mm -hmm. stokes it. But when, mm -hmm. when you say that I, you feel your life is in danger, what does that mean on a daily basis? Does it mean as you walk down the street, as you go about your life, that you, this is something on your mind that you 
or looking over your shoulder. Yeah. What does it mean? It means when I wake up in the morning, I hesitate to walk my dog. It means when I come home, um, I have to ask my fiance to come out to where my car is to walk me to just from my car to my front door. Uh, it means that there's just a, it, it is a general disposition where you kind of feel like there's almost a a static electricity around you and you're just always just looking around your head is just on a swivel going to a restaurant walking down the street um and it makes it challenging sometimes in certain environments to be fully present with the people that uh, you want to serve and how do you live with it and is it worth it uh, so I think the way that I live with it, um, has evolved over time, but I actually believe that it very much shaped my political decisions because I started to feel even in 2019 that it was possible that I may not see the end of the year. I really felt that way. And so it impacted how I navigated politically because I said, I don't know if I have time. So I need to be as robust and urgent as possible to say what I need to say because I don't want to take the time I have for granted. I don't know if I'm going to see, be there to see us achieve guaranteed healthcare in the United States. So I need to advocate it in a very fully-throated way right now, um, similar to a, a full, um, a, you know, a, a full path to citizenship for millions of people in this country. You know, I just have to be out and say it, and at least leave a roadmap. Um, should I not be there? Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. Though, should you not be there? I mean, do you? Does it ever? It's a pretty tough life to live. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think, let somebody else carry the torch? I've, I've absolutely had that thought, but I also know that in the history of the United States, when we look at Jim Crow, when we look at um, the era of reconstruction and resistance to us becoming a more just country, some of the most some of the darkest pockets in this country, most violent pockets of this country, use the threat of violence as a chilling effect to prevent people from trying to stand up for the right thing. And if I ever choose to leave public life, I want it to be on my terms and not on the terms of threats of violence. I will not bow down, and I will not let those dark forces win. So let's end this on a somewhat more hopeful <laughs> note with some just conventional politics. Do House Democrats need to replace Nancy Pelosi? Mm. Do they? Yes. Well, you know, I think that the speaker has um, spoken herself to, uh, a, you know, a generational shift in Democratic leadership. It, it is inevitable. Um, and I think it's just important to state that. It, it is inevitable. But should it happen now? I mean, 
we shall see. I, I, I think that um, comes down to her decision. She had indicated potentially. Um, well, it's not entirely her decision. I mean, yes. it's, it's, you know, she's not yes, the I queen. Think a, uh, I believe that this is a discussion, frankly, not just about the speaker, but frankly, our, the speaker and, and the whole suite of leadership, uh, which is responsible for much of the decision making, I think um, we also need. Three 80-year-olds. And I do believe that we need to have um, not just generational shifts, but potentially substantive shifts as well. I think that, and I hope that what we've seen, whether people think it's too left or too right or up or down or whatever it may be, that we shift in a direction where the leadership of the Democratic Party is less reliant on large and cor corporate donors and sponsorship, because that does have an, a shaping effect of our legislative priorities. Everybody always says you can't talk about it until the midterms. The midterms are over. Would you like to see other Democrats contest the nomination for president with Joe Biden? Well, I, I believe, you know, I will never dissuade primary elections because that is how I became a member of Congress. It would be hypocritical of me to state that we should just lock it up and no one should run and no one should, should have their shot. I think, uh, you know, in, in our general system, that is the way it should work. So, yes, primaries? You know, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm not running. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know. But um, I, you know, you I wouldn't be uh, you, you don't think Joe Biden's the president. Clear the field. You know, I I. I, in general, I don't believe that that is a, um, an overall disposition that we should have as a party. I don't think that that's necessarily healthy to have that, you know, forced. Now, you know, whether one individual person should step up or not, I don't necessarily have a dog in, in that fight. And what about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Are you in political life? Are you in seeking elective office for the long haul? Well, I don't count it out. I don't count it out. Congresswoman, pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. While there were a lot of surprising results in the midterms, there were no surprises in New York's 14th congressional district. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won re-election very comfortably with, thank you, 71% of the vote. It looks like she'll be a player in American politics as long as she wants to. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.